Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast, where Dr. Joel Schwartz and I, Travis, discuss the intersection of faith and philosophy. We are part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Please visit our site at tacticalfaith.com, check out our blog, our other podcasts, and if you live in Alabama or nearby, we would love to see you at one of our events. If you'd like to help support our ministry, please pray for us, share us with your friends, and consider supporting us financially by going to the Donate tab on our page. Welcome back to Wandering Toward Wisdom. The last time Joel and I spoke about, uh, well, we're doing this series on faith, and we spoke about trying to trying to define the idea of objectivity. And uh, I think one thing that we concluded uh, was that objectivity, and if we if we define that as looking at the world without value, uh, it's not a thing that anybody has. Uh, not even God looks at the world objectively in that sense. In fact. It seems like the way that we see the world, it's not a matter of having no value. It's a matter of having the right values, uh, whatever those happen to be. And that's a little bit of, that's something we're probably going to have to clarify. So this whole, this whole, uh, this whole series, uh, the, these last few podcasts have to do with faith and they relate, uh, in some ways to a series on faith on, on the website, tacticalfaith.com. You can check out the blog there, um, uh, a series that I, that I wrote on faith. It's actually a big part of tactical faith. Part of our uh, part of our push has to do with dealing with the the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and how they relate to apologetics. Uh, and so we're trying to f- reflect on the idea of faith because it is misused and misunderstood, I think, by both believers and unbelievers. And so uh, one of the questions about faith is: Is it just wishful thinking? Is it uh, is it something along those lines? And uh, part of the criticism is that faith includes value in the way that it perceives. And so our question is, can you perceive anything without value? Uh, and we've already, uh, I think we've concluded, uh, that there's no perception without value. Um, and near the end of that discussion, the last podcast, uh, uh, Joel brought up this strange sounding guy named Carol Votilia. Um, and he has a, uh, uh, philosophical perspective called personalism. Uh, one of the issues we we're talking about is how we perceive other people and whether it is appropriate to perceive people objectively. And it seems that is not the case. Uh, at least we would hope that's not the case because that's a cold, dead way of perceiving someone. Rather, it's actually recognizing the value that's in fact there. And so uh, we're going to go into that. In fact, Joel's going to kind of lead on this one in turn, uh, given that he's more, he's actually an expert on Votilia, uh, whereas I am a, a noob, as they say. And so uh, we're going to be talking about personalism this time, how that relates to perception of other people and how that, how that looks and how it relates to faith. Hopefully we can bring it around to that. Uh, but I'm Travis. I'm Joel. And uh, let's see where we can get here. So, Joel, tell us about Watilia. Uh, maybe a little bit. We don't care too much about him. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> we're not concerned a lot about a lot of biography, but uh, and and explain to us what his personalism is. So, Carol Watilia was a Polish philosopher. Um, in the uh, his his the bulk of his writings are in the sixties, nineteen sixties, and seventies. Um, he uh, you know, grew up. Uh, you know, during the the time of, of uh, communism, or well, po- post World War II, was when he did most of his growing up. Um, he you you probably actually know him by another name. Uh, he's Pope John Paul II. 
Um, but I, I'm referring to him as Vitulia because I'm focusing, I focused on his uh, pre-papal writings. And so, um, you know, he's writing as a philosopher, as a theologian, um, not as the Pope in these things. And so um, the, we, that's a, you know, a, a, a distinction that uh, some people don't want to make, but I, I think it's important to make because uh, I think when you're Pope, you write probably with different intentions than just when you're by yourself. Um, but, you know, we, you know, as Travis and I have talked, you know, we, we draw from, from many different streams because we're, we're trying to find truth that points us to God. And, um, and I think Vitilia is, is a great source of that, especially when it comes to understanding the human person. Um, so when Vitilia talks about our, our, uh, interaction with the world, our experience of the world, he's, he, uh, he's, he's kind of in the vein of something called phenomenology. Now, phenomenology is the idea that all there is, is our subjective experience of the world. There's nothing beyond our ex subjective experience of the world. Well, at least there's nothing that we can know independent of our subjective experience of the world, because everything we know comes through our experience of the world. Um, and so, Vitilia is is very focused on what that subjective experience of the world looks like, but in, but he's not a typical phenomenologist because he wants to say that there is an there is really something in the world. There really is something external to us, and he's focused on how do we or what's the relationship between our subjective experience of the world. And the world that really is out there. Uh, his big focus is on human persons, and well, persons in general. But the the I mean the when we think of persons, we think of human persons typically. Um, I think a little later we might come back to divine persons. You know, the triune, um, the triune God. But um, when we're talking about human persons, Vitilius says that there. The human persons have dignity; they have value by virtue of being human, by being a person. So we we have to start with that idea that that realization that there's value in in persons. There's value already there, and so our job is to say how how do we bring our subjective experience in line with that? Well, let me let me let me stop you for a second and let me ask. That doesn't seem, I think most people nowadays would say that's not at all interesting to say that people have value by virtue of being persons. In fact, we might even extend that value further and further down to the point where all living things have value and so on and so forth. So what are we, what are we talking about in terms of value? Like I could be a human trafficker and say, well, yeah, there's a value to all human persons. Um, it gets, you know, you get cheaper as you get too old and, but, uh, or, uh, or we may just be someone who believes in human rights and says, of course, everyone has value. So uh, why is it a surprising or interesting thing to say that people have value? Or what exactly does it mean by that? So when Vitilia talks about human dignity, uh, well, let, let, me, let me back up real quick. Uh, you know, as, as Travis said, you know, everyone likes to say, well, humans have values, you know, value in one way or another. And, you know, especially people who 
focus on human rights want to say, yes, everyone has value. Everyone, and, and so because they have value, you have to treat them a certain way. Well, Vitilia wouldn't necessarily disagree with them, but he say there's more to human dignity than just like a pre-established value. He, he says that your human dignity serves as a calling on you to become the fullness of, of who you, who you can be. Um, and so it's, it's, and so dignity is both something you have, but also something that drives you to be more than what you are. And I think a lot of our conceptions of dignity don't, don't take that next step of helping us become more, which if you want to get into that deeper, you can read my dissertation. <laughs> well, um, well, maybe maybe we can throw one thing out there. One of the one of the things when we're uh, when human dignity and value is normally talked about now, it's usually in line, at least in our culture, it's usually connected with a claim, something like you got it. You have to accept me for who I am. And what I think sounds like what you're saying is what Tilia would say something like, well, that's part of it. And, and in fact, in fact, yes. it might be the whole of it if you understand that who you are is part is partly what you're what you're meant to become. So it's right. there's a forward looking element to Otilia as opposed to our sort yes. of you might say backwards looking. Like I look back or this we have a view of if, if I can quote it, I am who I am, right? Which always struck me as being when you say I am who I am, you're kind of blaspheming. But uh, because we are we are always <laughs> yeah. changeable, and so to say who you I am right. who I am is to, almost to declare that I am unchangeable, which is weird um, and inappropriate. Uh, but uh, sort of an aside. But uh, the idea that that part of our dignity lies in what we are becoming, as well as what we are, as opposed to just accepting me for who I am. But whatever that happens to mean, I don't really understand that phrase that well. Um, uh, so Vidalia would would be pushing against that a little bit, that kind of thing. A, a little bit. I mean, at some level, for sure, um, because there's a sense in which um, there's a, a a incompleteness, at the least, um, in in each of us that um, our dignity helps push us toward, um, okay. or that helps helps push us past our incompleteness towards. Uh, being complete in uh, who we can, who we can be, and, and are, are meant to be in Christ. Um, and so the the value that we see in ourselves and other persons is is kind of complex and uh, requires kind of a, a an intimate knowledge of the other person to really be able to. Uh, work to um, see that dignity because um, you know some some of the you know the the example of the you know take take any example of a, of another person especially think the the really you know the serious bad guy the hardened criminal or whatever um, you know I think Vitilia would say those are people who um, their dignity is hard to see. Um, and 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 part of it is because they have made it hard to see their dignity, probably even to themselves. And so, um, seeing someone's dignity will sometimes require you moving beyond the picture in front of you. Will often require moving beyond the picture in front of you, the picture of that person. Um, 
to to experience um, their dignity in in its fullness. So it it, it might um, require an act of the imagination, or oh, so definitely. It's, yeah, it's not definitely. simply it's not simply evaluating what is easily perceived, but it's trying to peer into into something that is often almost invisible uh, or it, imperceptible it, yes. in order to, by it, use of the imagination. Okay. Yes. Yes. And, and we, we can talk about that a little more um, as we break down some of Vitilia's ideas. Um, now, now when he talks about persons, he has in mind that there's kind of three dimensions to our experience of persons. Um, the first, ex the first dimension is we experience ourselves as a self. That is, as um, a being that is uh, able to um, self-determine, to to kind of create goals for for oneself, to to make decisions, to take action. Um, and one thing that's important is in that element is that um, we can, that when we talk about the self, we have to um, remember that we can direct our goals, that we can direct ourselves to, to an end, um, as opposed to it just being like we're this determined, um, you know, piece, you know, uh, dominoes that are just falling one after the other. Uh, Vitalia says, no, we, we, we can do something about that. We can do something about our lives. Um, then the second element is, or the second dimension is uh, experiencing a person as an other. That is specifically as an other self. Um, so when you encounter an, another individual, you're, you're seeing them and you have to remember that they are not you, but they also have the same ability to determine their goals and make decisions and all that kind of stuff that you do. Um, and that there's, there's, um, and that's an important element. Um, and that when we interact with other people one-on-one, -on -one, part of what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand the world the way they do. To, to kind of see the subjective experience that they have of the world. Because if you can get into their mind a little bit, the more you get into their mind, the more you can understand what they value, why they do what they do, um, what they desire, those kinds of things. And you can better understand them as a self, the more you can get inside that while still recognizing that they're different than you. Um, and so, you know, you try and make connections with people. You try and, I mean, we, we do this when we, when we meet someone, it's like we, we play a game where we're trying to find things that we have in common or that common experiences or, or, or something because it creates a connection. And we kind of feel like we can understand each other a little more if we have that thing that we can kind of yeah, grasp this is about an, each this other. This is another thing that I feel like Watilia is saying. You could, you could read them and be like, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. I mean, we, we already know this. Yeah, there are other people out there doing their own things, right? I know that. But I've tried to, I, I try to impress this on students sometimes too, especially when I'm just, I'm introing the idea of philosophy. Like, what is philosophy? What is, what is the point of it? And I think a big part of it is, at least it has been in my own life. I'm not sure this is necessarily that 
common in academic philosophy. But nevertheless, um, the, it's almost every philosophy, and I, I've kind of pulled this from Nietzsche. This is very much Nietzsche's perspective um, on philosophy, uh, is uh, especially in a, in a writing he had about the pre-Socratic philosophers, uh, of which Socrates was one, oddly enough. Um, but uh, he said each one of these philosophical perspectives is someone, in, it's really a person that's presenting an entire perspective on the world. And for you to go through and simply criticize, you know, Heraclitus said everything is fire. Well, obviously everything's not fire or not everything's fire and so on and so forth. Um, that's missing the point of what Heraclitus, Heraclitus is presenting to us. It's like Heraclitus is inviting us to come see a world that's, that's fundamentally changing. It's always changing. It's always moving. There's nothing static. He looks about him and the closest yes. thing he can say is, it's fire. It's like fire. And to draw us, draw us in. And that, that should go in in even everyday relationships. Can you, can you, uh, it's amazing to think that every person that I come across has had an entire life and they have all these desires. They have these fears. They have these pains and they have times of hope, things that they're, that they're aiming toward and hoping for and, and, and wishing and lacking and all of that kind of stuff. And if you think about it, every single person you come across, they have this entire exhausting, amazing, interesting, fascinating element to them. And if you could really peer inside their head, you yeah. would lose yourself because there'd be too much. And yet we treat everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that's another person and they're getting in my way, but that no, it's truly to stand in there and recognize that there's someone there. Well, Vitilia calls it participating in the in the personhood of another. That's an and that it, it's yeah yeah it, it's it's a it's a trying to come to a deep understanding of another person, and I mean at, at some level, as we, you know as you as you just said as we walk around you know we're all of these these human persons are you know if we had the time to get to know them. Or you know to, to dive you know dive deep, we would just be fascinated um, because people are all a little different, and you know that's also part of what Vitilia talks to points to with the idea of 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 dignity is kind of the uniqueness of everyone. Um, you know your your subjective experience of the world is unique to you, and so it's a perspective that no one else can fully have. Um, and while it may be shaped by your um, genetics, it's also shaped by your experience such that, you know, even identical twins or, you know, we could even say Siamese twins who have been connected and experienced all the same things. They're going to have two different sub subjective experiences. Each experience is going to be unique if only from right. one's from one side and one's from the other. Now, there's it's almost guaranteed it's going to be a lot uh, richer than that. But um, there's a uniqueness about each of us that... Um, that part of trying to, to see the, the dignity in each other requires us to value that uniqueness um, as opposed to kind of the danger is saying uh, the way I experience the world, the way the things I value, the things I desire, that is the model of what it means to be human. And so those who share in similar, you know, in some of that I can sympathize with, but those who are very different than me, it's easy to, to 
to completely other them and forget that they're selves and meaningful selves. And by othering them to that extent, you, you make them uh, in a sense below you or, or non-human in the sense of if you're de- using yourself to define what it means to be human. Yeah. Well, maybe, I, I don't know if this is the right way to understand it. I actually have, I have a comment or I actually have two questions. Um, it might be something like, uh, this is, I'm going to, co- it's a comment, but it's meant to be a question. Uh, it seems like the, the, <laughs> <One> more, <of> those. <laughs> the more someone is, the further someone is away from my kind of, my kind of life, my culture, et cetera, et cetera. The, the more they're different, the harder it is to imagine myself into their subjective experience because it's, it seems so alien yes. to me. So it's easy yes. to see them as other and then to be obviously fearful, which is the history of humanity, right? There's a group that's different exactly. than us. We should probably kill them uh, or they're going to kill us. Um, it's uh, a little bit simplified. Uh, so that's part of the issue, right? Is that we have to expand our imaginations we have to we have to exercise our imagination in order to be able to perceive into the in, into the people, which that right there has a whole bunch of interesting implications about the way we talk about diversity and inclusion and so on and so forth. And we might be doing it wrong because it seems like our imaginations are actually shrinking, uh, even while we speak in terms. Of, but uh, let's not get into that right now. Uh, the the question the other question I have is I guess. I don't know if Watilia talks about this or if you've, you've reflected on this. Maybe he does. Yes. But is it that I'm, I have a moral duty to value the subjective experience of other people? Or is it that once I recognize that there is subjective experience in other people and I imagine myself into it, I will naturally value it? So, so is my lack of valuing other people simply a lack of using my imagination appropriately so that if I did, I would automatically value it? Or if, even if I saw it, I can not value it? Does that make sense? Um, I, I, yeah, yeah. I think, I think he's going to say that you, can, that, that you can see it and still write it off. Okay. Like you could – you could see the subjective experience of another and just say that is so completely foreign and wrong that that it, it, it's not worth further engagement. It's, it's an inferior subjective experience. Oh, okay. So you, you might give it a kind of value in that it is a subjective experience, but you don't, right. you don't, you definitely don't love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, all right. That's good. All right. I'll shut up. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, these are great questions, and and you know, I I've been steeped in this for over a decade now, and so it's easy for me to get caught up in my uh, in my ideas that are so clear to me and uh, aren't always clear to well, others. Well, my subjective experience uh, is clearly not as valuable as yours. So, <laughs> <laughs> so well, you know, that that's an important it's something that's, you know, like you said, it's, it's someone who has a very different experience requires more imagination for us to, to actually value it. Um, it's, it's more difficult to, to participate in their humanity, um, because we start from our own experience. Um, now before we get to the third dimension of personhood, I want to emphasize that for Votilia, this value isn't 
just something that we add to it, add to the world or add to these people through our subjective experience. He wants to say this dignity and value is in the person and not in their subjective experience. It's in the person. Um, and and for Vitalia, value is, is something that is not just brought to the table by our experience. It is in the world. Um, you know, he, he, in, in some of his, his work, he, uh, sets up a contrast, um, between the objectivists and the subjectivists. It's that, you know, those who, who like Kant want to say that all that matters is what there really is. And those who say, all there is, is a subjective experience. And Vitalia is trying to find the middle path and talk about how we are trying to get our subjective experience to line up with what's really there, um, with the reality of things. Mm-hmm. And, and when it comes to the value, it, it's about training ourselves to see the, the value such so, in one way that we can, one way that can be evidence, one way that we can train ourselves has to do with our emotions. Um, you know, a lot of times we, we want to write off our emotions or act like our emotions are, uh, are dangerous in how we understand reality. Um, but Vitalia says, no, the, the, the emotions are a good thing provided we're getting, having the right emotions to the, with respect to the right perceptions. Right. Um, Va- value should stir our emotions. So value being yes. being damaged should cause anger, sadness, regret, if we're a part of it, so, something like that. Um, so emotions are an appropriate response to value. Emotionlessness is an appropriate right. response to valuelessness. I guess. Kind of. As in, it's not a response <laughs> at all. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and and so um, we, we need to... Um, be careful because I think a lot of times when we feel anger, we, the anger tends to be as, um, maybe the rest of you are better than me, but I, when I feel anger, a lot of times it has to do with me feeling like my dignity has been wronged or has been, uh, devalued. Um, or, you know, and sometimes I can frame it in terms of other people, um, but somehow there's usually a connection right. back to me. Um, you know, it might even be, I really care about these particular people or this particular person. And so when, you know, their dignity is wrong, you know, that makes me angry because, you know, the, it, but it, it's, it's not a, a concern um, for them as a, as a, person as much as someone connected to me. Um, but that, that's probably a, a nuance we, we, we can set aside for right now and get, get, may, get yeah. into a little later, maybe a little later podcast um, is what he means. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cause I, that's a, yeah. a, yeah, huge hole that, uh, huge can of worms. But, um, so this third dimension of personhood, and this is where, uh, Vitalia can sound a little foreign to our Western individualistic ears, 
Um, no pun intended since he's Polish, but um, he says the third dimension of personhood is being a member of a we, being a member of a group. He says a we is a group of individuals who are um, striving towards a common good. And so you as a person uh, is you're also made up of the groups that you're a part of, of the common goods you're striving for with other people that you can't be understood as a, as a, you know, isolated autonomous self who's free of deep, meaningful connections to other people. And, and, and sometimes these deep, meaningful connections are not the, the, you know, we like to be around each other connections. Sometimes they're the, we're striving for this good together. And that's, we, we might not know much more about each other beyond that we're, we're both working towards this common good. And, but that means that we are meaningfully connected because we are a part of a we that defines okay, so who each of us are. First of all, besides the fact that you kept saying, you kept having a prepositional phrase with a subjective Anyway, of we just is is anyway, uh, but I understand what I understand what you're doing there. But uh, this is I remember we you and I used to have many discussions about this issue because uh, the idea mm-hmm. of grouping people and then trying to determine from those groups or just simply by virtue of their being grouped together by some arbitrary element of their lives, you know, like racism, you group people together by the color of their skin. And then you assume that there's an interest of those people based on the color of their skin. This, this kind of frustration with that kind of talk led me to begin to get to the point where I'm like, I don't even know what a group, what, what an actual we would be. And I remember there's some pushing back and forth here, but this is, this was very uh, eye opening to me. Um, The recognition that uh, they're, that what makes a group though is not some sort of like I pick some element that you share. So everybody with attached earlobes is part of the self-interested people protecting attached earlobe people or whatever Um, that they don't, they're not, you know, they need to vote in their best in the best interest of attached earlobe, whatever. If that became a thing, I'm just trying to pick something like nobody argues about. And so, um, uh, to set up groups based on some arbitrary physical element or geographical location or whatever. Uh, that's not what a, we, is. that's not what a proper, we is a proper, we has something to do with pursuing a shared goal. So if there is in fact a shared goal yes. that they possess, um, then, then you become a, we now are there levels of we ness, are there things that are more we, <laughs> groups that are more we, and groups that are a little, a little less quality we? I don't know. I don't, you know, like like it could be all the people who love backgammon. Are they a we? I mean, there's all four of those people. Um, <laughs> I, so whenever whenever we talk about a we, we have to ask the question: What's the common good? That everyone's okay. striving toward everybody in that um, in that group yeah. and if there's yeah yes and it, and and it's it's really important to say that um 
Vitilia is is not pushing towards a uh, totalitarian view of of a group where a group can say, "Hey, you know, say there's a group of." of five people and Travis and I are in the group and the other three say, Hey, we, we would really benefit if we, uh, if we took all of the resources that could have, could go to Joel and Travis, the three of us other ones would really benefit. And, uh, since there's three of us and two of them, we, we win, you know, that that's not a, we, um, a, we is not going to be totalitarian in, in the sense that it's going to, harm members of so the, are, are you, of are you the, saying the common good that the share uh, has to be something what about outgroup folks people who are not within the we is it i mean is is activity that brings harm to a to even an outgroup like what kind of common good has to be what are the standards for the common good i know i know we're already over 30 minutes and it's not that, that huge of a deal um but i just want to know like what is the are there standards for what can stand as a common good that creates a we, or can it just be anything? Like we, we have a group of people that, that get together and we, we hate people with attached earlobes and we do everything we can to, to attack people with attached earlobes. And so that makes us, are we a proper we? So, so based, so well, number one, I'm not sure hate can ever actually be a common good. Ah, now you're speaking my language. <laughs> Um, a, a common good has to, you know, embody the, the idea of, of goodness. Um, you know, that one of the things that Vitalia says, uh, at one point is that, um, that you have, um, that there, that there isn't a right to evil. You might have a right to, you know, do things, but you don't have a right to, to evil. Um, and, and, and what, what he's trying to get at there is he's trying to say that, that things that are, are definitively bad are not things that we can say are, are goods to which we, we can work toward. Okay. So if I unite together with a group of people based on my dislike of another group of people, then we're not a proper we. No. Cause I always no. tell my, I tell my students the easiest the shortcut to making a friend is to hate the same person, but it's a cheap, it's a, it's a short circuited way. And that friendship is always precarious because that's not a, that's not a real, that's not any, that's not meaningful ground to build a relationship on. If you right. really want to have a good relationship, you have to love the same thing. And it has to be something, of course, lovable, worthy. Right. You might say worthy of worthy of love is a little bit tricky, but like, some true value. So that that's what we're getting at is that that hatred of a particular group. So racism is not a way to form a we. No. No. For it, example. It may or it may be it may be a, a group that has some characteristics that we, you know, that we uh, see in an in an actual true we. Um, but because it's it's not focused on the good as much as it's focused on what it's not on mm -hmm. um that that's not going to um that's not going to be able to positively define who we are as a person and what our dignity is about okay in a way that um in the way that that a we is supposed to be able to do that okay so that's that's helpful so the idea is that it has to be a common good that in fact has some element of good in it not and yeah. some element of this is what we are. This is what, 
this is a positive thing toward which we're aiming, not not a definition of ourselves that's based on what we're not. Like right. I'm against this and I'm not that. Or I mean, I could be against authoritarianism, meaning that I'm for freedom, right? But in, it's simply like we're we're grouped together because we hate you know our manager at McDonald's. That's not a we. Right. Okay. And 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 sometimes. So Vitalia doesn't get into this as much or very much at all, but I think it's consistent to say that that a group can form um, hating something to which there's some sort of positive element that that is kind of is a consequence of mm-hmm. it, but that is not a true we if the good is a consequence of what brings you together. Um, rather, the good has to be the thing that brings you together. Now that's interesting. That's a I, pretty stringent requirement. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think I'm for not criticizing function, it for that reason. For, for to function as a true we, right. um, it's not that goodness. You know, you're drawn to goodness. You're not drawn towards something that happens to, to uh, when it plays out look like goodness. Yeah. This this it seems like a a, a modification or an adaptation of natural law ethics. Where good can't be a consequence of some bad you've done, the good has to be the thing itself that you're aiming toward. I I, I, th- I think that Vitalia is a kind of natural law. Well, he better be. He's Catholic, right? Well, he's not um, anymore. Now he's an. I'm just kidding. Um, sorry, bad joke. But the so the, this this idea of our of the groups and the things that we, and that we work toward. Um, that's an important part of who we are. Um, one other thing I want to draw out is that this idea of the common good, that sometimes you will willingly make sacrifices of yourself for the other members of the we. Um, not in a way that is harmful, but in a way that promotes even greater good in the among the, the we. So you think, you think of, of a society that has, um, or you know a, a a group of you know or, or you know I you know church say a church that uh, one of the members has a severely uh, disabled child and um, this church that's functioning as a we um, in order to to promote the good of everyone in that we they sacrifice of their time to help out that family with the severely disabled child whether it's you know, to sacrifice with time or with money or, or in some way, um, because they want to promote the good of, of every member of the we. Um, that's an, that's so, so sacrifice isn't demanded, but it's something that is willingly offered um, in, in, in a true, rich sense of, of a we. Okay. All right. So, so when you tie those and, 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 when you talk about uh, the understanding of the person, it's kind of a, a, a spiral wherein as you understand the other, and you can even look at yourself as other, you try to say, how do other people see me? How am I presenting myself to other people? Or what what common goods am I working towards with, with other people? Um, that can cause you to reflect back on yourself, what it means for you to, to th- know yourself as a self, which then can can enhance your understanding of of 
others, which can enhance your understanding of yourself as other. And <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, it continually uh, enriches uh, your understanding of personhood, right. uh, both for yourself and for others. And, and, I, and that's an important element for Vitilia is that you, you – that at some level, you have to understand yourself as a person well if you're going to understand others well. And you have to recognize your own dignity well if you're going to be able to recognize the dignity in others. Right. So that uh, love your neighbor as yourself, when the people say you actually sort of have to – that loving others, you sort of have to have a love of yourself. I'm not trying to sound like a motivational speaker here, but there's some element of, of, of the truth about that, that when we – and in fact, when we hate others, we perhaps are perceiving ourselves in an undignified way as well, or we're, we're – undermining our own dignity. That's, that's fascinating. So, so, so let's, let's, uh, let me see if we can try to pull this together, uh, to, to connect it with faith. So what, what we're trying to say is it sounds like you've thrown another wrench into the idea of objectivity, because what you're claiming is that one of the elements, one of the main things that we focus on in life as human beings are other human beings. It's a big part of our life part of our lives. And one of the mm-hmm. things that we really seek to understand, in fact, a lot of our research has to do with that, right? Even, even our study of, of, how, of biological diversity and so on and so forth, rationality and everything comes from trying to perceive what, or what it's like to be a human, how human beings came about, what, you know, what our capacities, capacities are for knowing and the whole, uh, that whole broad spectrum. What you're saying is that to recognize a human being, I don't try to perceive their value by reducing them down to their, you know, their physical elements, their biological elements or anything. What I need to do is perceive them as persons, which are this kind of unified self. Um, and to perceive it appropriately is to perceive it as being like me and to perceive it as to, to value it. And in fact, to have the right emotions and I, in order to do that, I have to engage my imagination. So what I'm trying to say is we've brought in the idea of having the right emotions, engaging the imagination, and that value is not cannot be reduced to, I don't know, what you're made up of in terms of physical properties. And right. that's, the, that's the correct way of perceiving another person. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah, and and I should also I also want to be quick to say that, um, while this is the case for other people, uh, we just don't have the mental capacity or the time to encounter each person we meet right. in this way. Um, it's, it's just not possible, and um, sometimes we have to, um, for functional purposes, um. To, to use um, characteristics to, um, you know, to, to make judgments to that, you know, we see someone driving, you know, we see someone pull up beside us and they're really mad instead of being like, hmm, I wonder why they're mad, you know, and like, try, you know, rolling down your window, can you tell me why <laughs> you're mad? And, you know, that, that's not going to, uh, no, but, you know, and so, you know, we hit the brakes, kind of give them their space kind and, you know, make that judgment that, but, you know, there's, a, it's different to do that than it is, you know, well, we, you can do that while still recognizing there's so much more to this person than I can know. 
and that what I may be perceiving may be a misunderstanding. They might not be angry. They might be really upset because they just got word that their spouse was in a car accident and they're on their way to the hospital or, you know, there's all kinds of explanations that, um, so when we, when we encounter people, we need to hold our judgments loosely, um, and allow them to be shaped by our actual encounters with the other person, not with, not just by Mm -hmm. our initial judgments. Um, we have to allow a, a constant, revision not because that person is changing you know even if that person wasn't change isn't wasn't a changing person we would still have to leave ourselves open to the the likelihood that that we have yeah, an incomplete that's, picture that's, of them that's almost a what that's demanding of us is a kind of a constant revision a constant checking and a constant engagement engaging of the imagination in relation to the other person which is which means you can never quite settle. So, so you know, and uh, right. in terms of the use of the imagination, uh, the the speech by David Foster Wallace uh, that's that's put on YouTube his video. This is water. I'd highly recommend it. He gives a great example of of how the engagement of the imagination is essential to, and it's not even that it's necessarily mm-hmm. going to give you truth about. It's not going to necessarily give you facts about that person. If I see a person angry in another car and they're driving sort of angrily and I'm like, my natural reaction is what a jerk, blah, blah, blah. But who knows what, what just happened to that person? And I, I can make, I can make up mm-hmm. stories. Are they going to be true? Well, they might be, but there's no, no, no evidence. But what is true is that there's more to that person than my immediate reaction is telling me and my, and my distanced perception of their exterior tells me. And so I'm accessing a truth about them. (laughs) Even if I'm not sure whether my story is true, it's likely that I'm actually perceiving them more appropriately. In fact, I am perceiving them more appropriately. If I use my imagination, even if the facts aren't right, I'm not trying to necessarily apply this directly to faith yet. Um, but even if the facts aren't right, the, what I'm seeing in terms of their, that person's self is far closer to accurate than simply responding in anger. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Right. We'll have to figure out what we're going to do with right. that. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I think a question and we're, we're getting along here. So maybe we want to push this on to, to the, uh, the next time. But um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, it's not just humans that are persons, yeah. but there are other persons there are celestial persons and you know there's the, the triune god three three persons in one um as we understand ourselves as persons what how, or or let me flip that around if the triune god is three persons what can the triune god teach us about what it means for us to be persons and how how does that how does seeing the the dignity and value of God as as weird of a term as that might sound. What is that? How does that shape us? And how do, how how can we use our understanding of ourselves to begin to understand and grasp who God is? One of the things that this is something I just, it's, it's, I try, I've tried to press it on students in some, in some sense, but I think it's, I think it's far more wide ranging than we think and far more important. Um, is that we, 
there's two ways. There's really sort of two ways of perceiving perceiving all things, you might say. One is that you start with personless matter, personless substance, and then out of that grows persons. Or you start with persons, and out of that from that comes substance. And so even the way we think about God, we tend, we tend to think of God as made of God stuff, and then some person evolved out of it that we call Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not the Trinitarian view. And arguably, I mean, and the, and the view of the creation of the world right. is not that it started with, with personless stuff, but it started with person. And so well, the point is, is that to perceive persons is not to perceive an illusion. It's to perceive things as they really right. are. That is, I mean, of course, I'm setting this up as a hypothetical. If, in fact, the triune view of God is accurate, which I believe it is, um, then to perceive persons as a secondary outgrowth of personless matter is, in fact, an error. And the appropriate way to perceive things is to perceive persons as fundamental, as hypostases, right? That's the, the Greek word for that, which, which, under, which is underneath it. It's persons, not something else. And so... Um, uh, but that's, again, those are a variety of different things that we, we may be able to get into later, but we're, remember this, this whole conversation is about faith and what we're trying to get to is, uh, one of the elements that we really wrestled with the idea of faith is that faith is clearly a kind of valued seeing it's perception that includes value. And we tried to, we, we talked about whether there can be valueless seeing and our conclusion is no. And I think that's a conclusion of most people who have really thought through the issue. There's a lot of people who claim that their objective science, blah, 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 blah. I don't think they know what they're talking about. Uh, I mean, but I do think they're persons who have important subjective experiences. But we'll see where we develop this next time uh, as we as we kind of wrestle with some of the questions of faith. Uh, but we thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. And have a great day.